get a few critics, mostly white critics, who thought it was super inspiring and down with the youth. I mean, my favorite part is like, it is down with the youth, but in the other sense of down with. <laughs> Gentlemen, we have six players failing at least one class. We have failed each other. Hi, welcome to the Channing Salon, the show where we discuss gender, genre, and je ne sais quoi, one Channing Tatum movie at a time. I'm Rachel Lee Berger. I'm Rachel S. Bernstein. And this time, we're talking about Channing Tatum's feature film debut, Coach Carter, which was directed by Thomas Carter and released in 2005. So the IMDb summary for this movie is, Controversy surrounds high school basketball coach Ken Carter after he benches his entire team for breaking their academic contract with him. Rachel, do you feel that's an accurate summary of the movie? My suspicion is that that was the pitch for the movie. Sure. <laughs> um, and that's where that line of text comes from. It's a decent logline for a movie, certainly. I don't know that they successfully executed that pitch, mm -hmm. but I do think it's what they were trying to execute. Yeah. Um, so I would argue it is an accurate summary of something that happens in the movie. <laughs> Uh, but I don't Arguably think... the only thing that happens in the movie. I would say that it, it's also relevant that the team is very bad and immediately becomes undefeated as soon as Coach Carter takes over the team. I didn't notice that because I don't understand sports, which is something <laughs> we'll get into more. I, I couldn't tell whether the team was bad or not. I, they win every game and they repeatedly say that they're 16 and 0. Yeah, but I couldn't tell if at the beginning that was, like, well, abnormal. When he starts the game, he says, how many games did you win last year? And they say, we won four games. I don't know how many games they played. They also say that! I missed that because I was distracted, I, I think guess. you hear the word basketball and your mind just starts like bees. Oh. Elevator music. <laughs> I'm telling you, every time. Steering things back to Coach Carter, um, my more subjective take on the movie, if you're mm -hmm. okay with me uh, elaborating please, on that a little please bit. Please, do. So, if I were writing... A summary. Uh, I would say, in this movie, based on a true story, Samuel L. Jackson plays Ken Carter, a man with no discernible personality traits. Okay, we know that he would like to go on vacation in Mexico with his girlfriend. Is she a girlfriend or a wife? I couldn't tell. He, he calls her his girlfriend. Okay. And that's the only thing we know about him. Yeah, it's wild. Um, so he has no discernible personality traits, but he has a lot of opinions on how to solve complex social problems and which professional teaching boundaries don't apply to coaches. And he returns to his former high school in Richmond, California as the basketball coach and immediately goes on a really weird power trip and decides <laughs> the best way to handle the problems of like the school to prison pipeline and his students' marginalization uh, due to race and socioeconomic status is to basically just make them do a ton of extra basketball drills to the point where I was, like, worried for their so, health. So I'm gonna, like, pop in that they're not actually doing a ton of extra basketball drills. What they're doing is a ton of extra conditioning. Okay, there's no and difference like, to me between no, those things. But that's why I'm telling you. So yeah. what he's actually doing is having them do way more calisthenics and conditioning and actually less basketball drilling than they were previously yeah. doing. The weirdest thing about this movie is that he just repeatedly refuses to do basketball. He makes them do a ton of calisthenics and makes their teachers do a bunch of extra work and report to him on how the students are doing and, like, tutor them. And is really mean to the principal. He's really... He's just so bossy to the principal, and it's like... Yeah, he, he clearly thinks he knows how the principal should be doing her job for no reason. Like, he doesn't really give a reason why he should be the one who knows this stuff. Yeah, and he, he does all of this in the name of getting the kids into college so they can then play basketball in college, and there's no discussion whatsoever of 
like non-criminal alternatives to college or what to do after college or yeah, I mean, to be when clear, they're not playing basketball. Something that's kind of not elaborated at all is this idea that the parents think their kids are going to be in the NBA and he's saying, no, they're not, so they have to go to college and the only way they can do that is to get a basketball scholarship. But none of that is articulated. We're just supposed to assume it. We're supposed to assume it, but it's also like, if any of these kids don't want to go to college, he's basically just telling them they will go to prison. And I understand where he's coming from in terms of, like, yeah. the statistical trends, I suppose. Yeah. But it's a little weird in, like, specific circumstances with actual, real individual children in front of you to I not be like... Why don't we come up with a plan for what you will do if you don't go to college? And the thing is, at no point in this movie does Ken Carter recognize that there are real individuals in front of him in any context. That's also true, um, because, uh, yeah, as I was going to say, he seems to be a pretty decent coach. Um, they become undefeated. They become undefeated, and he does manage to win over the skeptics on the team. Largely through bullying. Through bullying, yes, but he does encourage the team to bond with each other and work well together. We may not agree with his tactics, but he does succeed at doing that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess giving him a common enemy works. Um, but they then they like him, which might be Stockholm Syndrome. But when he <laughs> finds out bizarrely late in the film, like, we're talking what in most films would be the Act 3 turn. He finds out that some members of the team didn't meet his minimum GPA requirement. He locks everyone out of the gym, possibly including all the other student <laughs> athletes. And like gym classes. Yeah, and gym classes. Who he like, this definitely, is a broke school, they don't have two gyms. He definitely doesn't know or care about any of these other people. Um, and it's genuinely unclear how or even if he has that kind of authority. Although the principal at some point just gives up on telling him what to do, it's clear. <laughs> uh, and there was a padlock involved. Like, I don't know, I don't know what was going on with other people getting in. It, that was like imagine showing up for class and you don't pay attention to school sports, so you have no idea this is going on, and then like you can't go to gym class because the door is locked. I mean, personally, I would have been thrilled. Oh, hard same as this actually happened to me in high school because they renovated the gym. Amazing. <laughs> uh, so then he like supervises the team in a bunch of montages of them painting over graffiti for some reason. This is never like elaborated on. Yeah, they never discuss that as, like, something they're doing. It's just well, in a Well, it's because part of their contracts was that they had to do community service, which is, like, dark. <laughs> okay, but, like, for one thing, there are other things you can do. No. For another thing, what... Who, did he ask anyone before, like, having the kids paint the walls there? At, at no point does this, school, does this movie, like, recognize that this takes place in a public school and yeah. there's a lot of rules. Yeah, it, like, it's... There's just so many things here. But yeah, these montages have them painting over graffiti and hanging out in the library, which is supposedly, I guess, them studying. But there's no evidence they're like study. Like, we don't know what they're studying, what that means. Um, mm -hmm. Studying can take multiple forms, but we, we have no idea what they're also, doing. Fun fact. So when they finally have a big montage that they all did learn stuff, Mm -hmm. The big scene is that we see someone filling in <laughs> what religion? The Mormon religion? <laughs> Which, first of all, isn't even true. <laughs> okay, so, backtracking. There's this moment where it zooms in on this guy getting his paper back, and it says, what religion was Gerald Mor Manley Hopkins? Um, what, what religion was English poet Gerald Manley Hopkins? And it's been marked correct, and it's written in the Mormon religion, which is especially funny because Hopkins was Catholic. <laughs> Absolutely wild, and I did notice that at the time, but, like, 
was so thrown by just, like, the concept of zooming in on a paper that says the Mormon religion that I, like, <laughs> forgot to even pay attention to what the question was. <laughs> right. Like, cool, they're getting good grades, whatever. Um, None of them, like, discover the joy of learning, though. They they definitely... Well, I mean, like, maybe they do. I, I couldn't tell. Well, one of them discovers the joy of Marianne Williamson. But it's hard to even tell what their ad- individual attitudes are about anything at almost any given time because, like, there's so little character development for yep. each of these kids. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little bit for some of them, but we'll get into that. So he gets a lot of media coverage for this shutdown, um, and the community gets really mad and harasses Although him about it. Although actually still less media coverage than he got in real life, because he was on, like, GMA. He was on, like, multiple nationally televised shows. So the community, like, hates him for this. And they're, like, a little overboard about it, but <laughs> they're also, whenever they actually say anything yeah. as like a specific objection to what he's doing it sounds pretty reasonable yeah they're basically right <laughs> like they're definitely right yeah like regardless like, of- even at the beginning when that one parent is like uh we're not gonna buy our kids suits and ties yeah <laughs> and he's like he's like go to goodwill and then they're like we don't need to go to goodwill we're not poor it there's a it's a weird scene like it's, it's like a very weird they scene. start debating whether to shop at goodwill instead of debating whether the kids should be required to wear suits yeah in general like you don't want a movie about black respectability politics written by two white guys yeah you also generally don't want it discussed by two white women but yeah i mean i think we're not the people to speak to that but there's some stuff that's transparently like Oh What's yeah, this was on? written by white yeah. guys. And I think there's plenty of other things in this movie for us to talk to without oh, us making there's... our pronouncements on the black <laughs> respectability politics, but I do just want to point out that's a huge theme of the movie, which, while it does have a black director, is written by two white men. Yeah. So, eventually the basketball team uh, stops getting collectively punished for a couple of them having bad grades. Illegal <laughs> under the Geneva Conventions. Yeah! <laughs> and, like, not even having bad grades because they're all still academically eligible to play. They go to a big game. Can you elaborate on what that is? They go to state. (laughs) Oh, was it state? I just couldn't. I couldn't. I'm telling you, elevator music. (laughs) It literally says they're going to state. Okay. The thing about this movie that does cause a problem is that every game is treated as the big game. Right. That's what I found confusing was like, there were a couple times I thought they might be going to state and then it hadn't happened yet, I guess. Yeah. So they go, first of all, they just... Initially, like, all of their games are treated as that, and then they go to an invitational tournament, mm-hmm. um, and then finally they do actually go to state, which is, in the movie, something that they get, like, an invitation. I don't know how this works in California, because yeah. I grew up in Texas, so I don't know if that's the case, but it's treated as an invitational rather than something that automatically happens based on the standings, which mm-hmm. I thought was a little weird. I had a question about that as well, but I wasn't sure if that was just me not knowing about sports. So I'm glad to hear that you were also a little bit confused. <laughs> yeah, I think it may just be a California thing or a basketball thing, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, so anyway, they lose the game, but it's okay because they learned about the power of college. <laughs> and suits. And suits. Yeah, but suits, like, I think that's more legit. Oh, I'm Suits are powerful. Agree. Suits are great. Um, they actually have really nice suits. They do. They have really nice suits and they look great in them. And yeah. um, you explained to me a little bit that it is a real thing in professional basketball, that yeah. people wear suits on game day and everything. Yeah. And because um, I was confused because I was like, don't they wear uniforms to <laughs> basketball? <laughs> and Rachel patiently explained that sometimes they're going to and from the game and also (laughs) there's like a whole school day before that and everything which makes a lot of sense now that I think about it um I yeah I think um having that context the suit thing was less ridiculous than most of the rest of this contract that he had them sign although I do think it's a little Mm -hmm. bit ridiculous to require high schoolers to have 
really any kind of uniform that's not provided by the school for an an extracurricular activity. I did have to buy a suit for school for speech tournaments, and I was very resentful of the whole thing, and it was expensive. Yeah, like, I (laughs) I think that's not great, but that's irrelevant to the movie. Um, So they lose, but they all learned how important college is or whatever and and we find out that the real people that it's based on did go to college and uh graduate they did normal things is what it sounds like yeah they like graduated with like degrees in communications and business and stuff yeah um a couple of them played uh, college ball which is great for them um they seem like a good group of kids um there's Much also, better than they're treated as. Yeah. There's also a subplot about a teen pregnancy. Featuring um, Ashanti featuring as the Ashanti. And Adrian Bailon as her friend. Yeah. Truly iconic 2005 content. Truly. Um, there's like half of a subplot about drug dealing cousins. And there's about a fifth of a subplot about an incredibly strange father-son relationship. The likes of which I've never seen. It's super weird. It's And we'll get into it, I think, when we get to gender. Yeah, and it's it's weird, but not in the ways you expect. Very much not. Like, when I say it's weird, I'm not using that as a euphemism for anything. It's just weird. Yes. It's never explained why these characters feel about each other the way they do. Yeah, there's nothing creepy about it, and there's not even really that much conflict. The son has a very unusual attitude toward his father that isn't unrealistic if we had any explanation for why. Yeah. We should explain what Channing is doing in this movie, which he doesn't seem to have any real place in. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, Channing is the token white guy on the team. Essentially. So he plays Jason Lyle, who Who is, was a real person. Who was a real person. He is a real person, I assume. I hope so. I have not looked this up. He's a high school basketball player, obviously. Um, he's one of the few white guys on the team, although I was a little bit confused because occasionally a completely different batch of extras would show up in the background of team scenes, and some of them were white sometimes, but, like, sometimes they weren't. Yeah, it doesn't seem like they had the same group of kids every day. They definitely <laughs> didn't have the same group of kids every day, but you'd think they would have made an effort to make, like, them vaguely look like they could be the same group of kids, and they did not. Like, there were at least two white guys who I noticed who were completely different men. Mm-hmm. And they were not in every team scene. <laughs> and that was confusing to me. Yeah. Because it's like, well, why even have Channing Tatum in some of these scenes at that point? <laughs> like, yeah. he probably cost more. We know, um, that, we know that his dad is in prison. We know that his dad is in prison. Um, we know that he, he flirts with a girl once in one of the, like few attempts at humor in the movie, and that I want to put the emphasis on attempts. Um, <laughs> this movie does not have a sense of humor. He does have a sense of humor in it, though, in general. He has a sense he of humor He seems to be it. really happy to be there. Oh, totally. But that doesn't mean the movie has a sense of humor. No. Because um, there's a couple of times, there's like a weird running, I don't want to call it a gag, because it's not, but a, a running thing where Samuel L. Jackson, Ken Carter, I should call him Ken Carter, uh, is talking to the team about his sisters. Oh, we can get into that. We will get into that, but there are there are comments like throughout the movie where a character on the team will comment on something like that. It's not just that, but right. it's one of the better examples and say things like, what's the deal with this guy? Yeah, he'll say like, how many sisters does this guy have? And I think that's supposed to be a joke, but, but we're it actually we're it. all thinking the same question and yeah. it's just a legitimate question, so right. it's not funny it's just true right but yeah so Channing is one of the team members and he's one who they're kind of four or they're four or five who are like the main team members yeah and yeah there's there's five and Channing's kind of the only one of the five that doesn't really have his own storyline mm-hmm. um so there's uh 
the one with the girlfriend, there's the drug dealer one, there's the coach's son, there's the one who can't read, and then there's Channing. Yeah. And his plot seems to be, he's white. (laughs) He's white, his dad is in prison. And he has a coat. He does have a coat. And that's really all there is to say about Channing in terms of, you know, the basic pitch for his character. But some of the other notable cast members who I would say are more important and were, you know, at the time... more interesting performers uh, since this was Channing's debut. Um, Ashanti... Also her film debut. Also her film debut, but obviously she's Ashanti. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. Um, She's great in this movie. She's really good in it. She gives what I think is by far the most interesting and, like, unexpectedly nuanced performance. um, Yeah, I would agree. As the pregnant girlfriend of one of the team members, Kenyon, who's played by Rob Brown. Rob Brown, who will... Uh, we'll see again in Channing's other MTV film. Uh, mm. This this was a MTV films production, and he and Rob Brown will reunite in Stop Loss a few years later for MTV. Uh, Octavia Spencer shows hey! up as the mother of another of the teammates, and um, she has a bunch of like very mediocrely written hair. scenes. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean the less said about whoever styled her, the better. But she does manage to absolutely steal the scenes she's in, even though they're not very good scenes. Yes. Yeah. I would agree. I do want to talk a little bit about the director, Thomas Carter. Sure. Um, so Thomas Carter, he is uh, a black director. He started out as an actor, and he actually started out on the television show The White Shadow, which has basically the same plot as Coach Carter. Um, it's not based on a true story, but it is about a basketball team of inner city roughnecks who get shaped up. Um, so he was on that TV show, and he directed a few episodes of it and kind of went on. And he then directed the film Swing Kids, which I've seen, and I think you told me you haven't seen I have not seen it. So Swing Kids is a movie that takes place in Nazi Germany. And that was not what I was <laughs> expecting. <laughs> oh. Oh, that's where we're going. All right. Well, okay, so Swing Kids... Buckling in. <laughs> swing Kids takes place in pre-war Nazi Germany. It's about these teenagers who are obsessed with swing with American swing music um, and have kind of a secret swing dance club because they're not supposed to listen to black or Jewish music, um, which most of the swing music was at the time. So they have to go into, like the secret listening booth at the record store and get the records and they have these dance parties but their parents are pressuring them to become nazis basically and i watched it in history class in high school it's not a terrible movie but definitely when i realized that he had directed it it slotted a lot home for me about coach carter okay and kind of where he's coming from with this idea of young people and then he also after that directed the julia styles movie save the last dance which also has a lot of similar themes to Coach Carter. That does contextualize yeah. a little bit more for me. Yeah. He kind of got Coach Carter off of the buzz of Save the Last Dance. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah. What he has done since, he hasn't really done a big feature since. He's mostly become a television director, and he did direct a TV movie, which was Gifted Hands, The Ben Carson Story, which, again, I feel is interesting given the themes of Coach Carter. I don't even have any comment on that. It. It's right there. We don't need to... It's right there. It's very service level, but this this movie came out pre-presidential run. Yeah. What I'll say is that it is very clear why the same person would be interested in doing both Coach Carter and the Ben Carson story. Yeah, and I think in terms of this movie's, you know, politics and just overall attitude about... Yeah. Not even about any of the specific issues it tries to adjust, but about... Just about life. <laughs> yeah, about... 
how one should live. Yeah, how one should live, and just the the general sort of inspirational narrative, which we'll talk more about when mm-hmm. we talk about genre. Yeah. Um, it's very, it's right there. Um, obviously not everyone listening to the podcast, mm-hmm. if anyone is, uh, will have seen the film, but I think even from what we've said, you can kind of gather... The tone. The tone and the stance that it takes, um, which is very much, you know, in favor of mm-hmm. Coach Carter's decisions and strategies and, and ideology, um, yeah. and I think there And are... one thing that we haven't mentioned yet is that Ken Carter was very involved in the film, Mm-hmm. Um, in the casting, and then he was on set. I don't know if that was literally every day, but throughout the process. So, yeah, and it th- certainly was created under his auspices. I think it's notable that um, the subplot that's sort of least relevant to the film is the subplot with Ashanti and mm-hmm. the teenage pregnancy, but it's also probably the most interesting storyline in the film, yeah. um, and it's largely because it has nothing to do with, with Ken, Ken Carter. Yeah. Um, it, could, it could be its own film that has nothing to do with anything else going on. Yeah. And probably should have been. Um, so what was your impression of this movie before watching it? Because I don't think either of us had watched it before this. Neither of us had seen it. Um, and I will, just for context for the audience, in 2000, in January of 2005, Rachel and I were in fifth grade. Uh, so we would not have seen this in the theater, I don't think. I'm surprised that it was never shown to me, like, in middle school. Just, like, having watched both Remember the Titans, The Blind Side, all of that stuff. I have not watched those films. (laughs) I envy you deeply. I mean, I've seen parts of Remember the Titans when it airs on Disney Channel. I didn't pay great attention to either of them, but both of those I was shown in class on a, like, you know, exams are over, but we still have to have class kind of day. I'm kind of surprised this one never came up in that context. Yeah. What I was kind of expecting is something in the vein of Remember the Titans and The Blind Side, which I think is pretty much what we get. Yeah. Um, And that's basically what I was expecting once I figured out what the movie was. Um, Initially, I was like, the title Coach Carter to me says, like, comedy about, like, uh, you know. You were thinking of, like, old school. No, I was thinking of, like, one of those things where someone isn't good at their job. (laughs) Right, I get what you're saying. (laughs) You know what I mean? So, like, initially I, I didn't, I didn't know what genre to expect, but one, before I watched the film, I had figured that out, but I knew nothing going in. I didn't even know Samuel L. Jackson was in it until, like, a week before I watched the movie. Yeah. A lot of things made a lot more sense once I had some of that context, (laughs) but, like, it, yeah, my, my impression before watching was basically, like, oh, that's, that's what this movie's gonna be, Mm -hmm. but I also, you know, I, I don't, love those like inspirational narratives especially when they're sports narratives no, I. I, they're just not for me um i generally don't like to be forcibly inspired i like to be inspired by accident <laughs> that's the only inspiration i will accept this is like very c.s lewis of you surprised by joy how dare you <laughs> i am nothing like c.s lewis surprised by joy is pretty good for a christian apologetic it's pretty good Anyway, so, uh, back to Coach Carter, was there anything that really interested or surprised you while you were watching the movie, or after you watched the movie? I think the biggest surprise is it's a movie that was released in 2005 for a general audience. It's super anodyne politically, and yet it has a whole plot about the ethics of abortion that doesn't come down with a solid opinion. I was also really surprised by that. I was surprised that it even brought up that abortion happens. It was very (laughs) surprising, especially because there's no reason for that to be in the movie. I don't know that it's super well tackled, but it really does make a genuine effort at thinking about the perspectives of everyone involved when someone's considering abortion, and that's rare, even today. In a feature film, especially one that has a bunch of teenage characters in it, I 
have not seen many films tackle it with that kind right. of, I don't necessarily want to say open-mindedness, but willingness to acknowledge nuance. Yeah, um, and, and it is open-mindedness in the sense that it doesn't treat whatever will happen as a preordained conclusion. That's true. I did feel like there was a little bit of a judgmental tone, yeah. not about the abortion itself, but about, the getting, fact, pregnant about getting pregnant in the first, in the first place. place. I would agree. And I, I think in some ways it's hard to separate That's that sentiment from attitudes about abortion. I also, I do think that like the the teen romance uh, mm -hmm. was treated really sweetly. I and thought really like, sweetly and really seriously. Yeah, really, really, uh, I don't want to say respectfully because that has like a weird yeah. connotation, but like it took seriously that these are real people with real feelings even though they are still kids. They're people who are almost adults. You know, I almost do want to watch the movie that Ashanti and Rob Brown are in that's almost completely separate from this one. And I do want to note that, like, that movie doesn't really exist. The next thing that uh, we want to talk about is genre. Absolutely. Um, so this movie obviously is an example of a mixture of genres, but also, like, a really well-defined uh, yeah. sort of combined genre. Um, but if you had to sum it up, what single one-word genre would you put this movie in? If you could only pick one, I believe you've phrased it before as like the the big blockbuster in the sky, yes. you know, what shelf is it on? Yeah, um, I'm gonna say inspirational. All right. Um, I think that's more relevant to what it eventually does than any of the other terms I could use. Um, sort of the secular equivalent of a faith-based movie. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a really solid answer. Um, I think I would go with sports, just that's because fair. it definitely is a sports movie. Although I do think that um, something I haven't said that was sort of my immediate response to the movie mm -hmm. was, you know, given my inability to parse sports on screen, I found it really damning that I understood almost <laughs> everything that happened in this movie. And I, I think just to, just to elaborate why I didn't choose sports, I think at the end of the day, this movie has more on a genre level in common with something like Freedom Riders or something like that than it does with, um, you know, with, with a school movie that it does with a movie like The Sandlot. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think for me, most of those inspirational teacher kind of movies end up falling under drama, like generic That's drama. Fair. That's um, If we're really boiling it down. Sure. Um, and I think this is more of a sports movie than it yeah. is a... I think drama. that's valid. Um, like, it ends with a big sports game. It, it They lose, which is unusual. Um, and that is also, I think, why I lean a little bit away from the inspirational thing, just because mm -hmm. what's weird is it's a biopic, but it's not about a famous enough person for it to be a biopic. And I mm. think there's a way to do this movie where it is really a straight biopic and where it's about what brought Ken Carter to this moment and how the major decision he makes affects his life. And for whatever reason, they don't use any of that material. No interest in that whatsoever. And I do wonder if the real Ken Carter, like, didn't want them to address yeah. his personal life or his past or... I, I don't know. Because um, it's... It's very it's a, hard to tell. It's a very strange absence in the movie, I think. Um, as you said, even his and girlfriend is very even, I almost wonder even if there was material, like, because he is a businessman, he owns a sports store, and I know that the real Ken Carter was pretty proud of being a business person. He owned multiple businesses at one point. He's a former military person, and I kind of wonder if there was more stuff about business and the military in there that test audiences felt was too Republican. I'm not joking. Like, yeah. I do wonder if that was in there as being, like, what brought him here and test audiences were like, oh, so this is a Republican movie. 
<laughs> I mean, it already feels like a Republican movie. But I do think, like, I do wonder if there was some pushback from yeah. test, test audiences to some of those sort of bootstrappy elements or the military element. Yeah. So we've got these broad categories. What super specific subgenre would you put this in um, if you got to sort of invent a oh, genre combining these things? Um, and what other movies might fit in there with it? I mean, I have to put this in the genre of movies that do not do right by Octavia Spencer. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> and I think we all know how many movies are in we that know. genre so many titles and it's so sad i'm being a little silly but i do think that movies that don't do right by octavia spencer weirdly have a lot in common and i think this has a lot in common with them i also think that many of them do fit into that inspirational movie category Mm -hmm. um and also the like problematic racial politics um it's also worth saying that she was how many years eight years older than eight years older than her son yeah eight years older than the guy playing because she's young and he's old yeah um, I mean, like, the, the the teenagers in this are played by Full mid adults. to late 20-somethings. Like, they're played Full by... Adults. They're played by people who are our age, basically. Um, but it is telling that it is one of those movies where she's playing the mom of someone who is not even a decade younger than her. Right. The super-specific subgenre that I would put it in yep. is actually um, movies about adults interacting with teens that can't decide if they're a movie for teens or adults. That is super, super valid. I think that's a ongoing problem that Hollywood hasn't figured out how to solve yet because mm-hmm. Hollywood really loves a teacher. Yes. But they do not always love dealing with the fact that there's an entire classroom of students right. and they don't love dealing with the fact that like once you've put more than one teen in a movie, you do have to maybe think about teens as an audience and as people and as people um but then on the other hand you have movies like this where you know it's mtv films producing it and they start to almost approach it from that teen audience perspective but then get so caught up in ken carter that the teen audience is clearly no longer even a factor in terms of uh you know sports films and high school films did you have any thoughts on how this adheres to or subverts those genre so i think the big thing that i just kept thinking throughout this movie is wow white kids get dead poet society and black kids get this that's fair. <laughs> like, just because a lot of the critics did compare this to Dead Poet Society, they both have that aspect of a teacher who doesn't play by the rules comes to a school and teaches the kids something totally different than the principal wants them to learn. One day I would love to watch a movie about a teacher who plays by the rules. <laughs> <laughs> that is valid. And I'll confess that I also hate the movie Dead Poet Society. Fair. But Robin Williams in that movie comes in and the big thing that he's teaching the kids that the school doesn't want them to learn is to be iconoclasts and think for themselves. And in this movie, the big thing that Ken Carter is teaching the students that the school doesn't want them to learn is to, like, be super conventional and follow the rules. Yeah. And, <laughs> and like, I just feel like the, the racial dynamic there is very notable. It is very notable, and I think even in the sort of well-known subgenre of white teachers with predominantly non-white classrooms, yeah. um, there is, even there, a tendency to romanticize this idea of thinking for oneself but when the students are white that means they get to be rebellious and when Mm -hmm. the students are not white suddenly that means them adopting whatever ideology is put in front of them by that teacher Mm -hmm. and I obviously find that really troubling and sad but it's also Mm -hmm. just 
it's weird that it hasn't been better subverted by now, considering that there are several notable examples like this one of, you know, the inspiring teacher who isn't a white savior. Sure. While we're still on the topic of genre, mm -hmm. do you think that the fact that we, aside from us disagreeing with the politics of the movie right. or or with the character's strategies mm -hmm. um, with yeah. his students, do you think that the inspirational narrative plays significantly worse than other similar movies like you know, that Dead Poet Society, Vane, right. or Remember the Titans, mm -hmm. or things like that, for an audience that's more receptive to inspirational narratives, because we're really not the target audience in many ways for this. Um, and we know that. Yeah. Like, are, are there mm -hmm. storytelling weaknesses that make it less effective, you know, from your perspective, even compared to those movies? Or do you yeah. think that an audience that likes those movies would still find something similar in it? Mm -hmm. um, to I mean, enjoy. I would say this, on the one hand, like, I do think the fact that this isn't a savior narrative is a positive in this in this film's instance. And Are you sure it's well, not, though? Not a literal white savior narrative. It's not a white savior yeah, narrative, okay. but it is Sorry, a savior narrative. That, that's what I meant to yeah. say. But, on the other hand, this movie's plotting is fucking awful. This movie's plotting and, more importantly, it's, like, structure and pacing. Right, that's, that's what I mean to say. Well, because I do think they're, they're slightly separate issues. I think the conflict in this movie is not well... Mm -hmm. articulated because right. it's a lot of people saying really valid things uh, that go against whatever Ken Carter wants mm -hmm. and then him saying, well, I'm Coach Carter, so that's not how I'm doing it. Right. Um, which is, it's strange as a screenwriting choice, but sure. um, it's not the same thing as the, frankly, even more like insurmountable to right. me structural issues where like the, the plot of this movie does not start for two hours. It is a two hour and 16 minute movie and I did have the thought pretty early in the movie like this would be a much more fun like short film right. than it is a you know over two hour movie. Yeah. Um, and I, I do think that it should have been two hours shorter. But we also get <laughs> we get about an hour and a half of a sort of conventional sports movie before we get into the whole inspirational teacher shutting down the gym narrative. Yeah, and what's strange is that before that, it is this inspirational teacher thing, but it's just about him getting the team in shape and them coming to respect him. And become good at basketball. And I don't think that it's necessarily totally unsuccessful at that. It's just that it doesn't have enough conflict or tension or, you know, it doesn't give us enough real... One thing that's kind of uh, funny about this movie is that the old coach is a character in the movie and is friends with Ken Carter, and they really throw that guy under the bus. They do. <laughs> like, they both in terms of, like, this guy didn't have what it takes to, like, fix the kids, but also just in terms of Coach Carter arrives on the scene, exact same group of kids, exact same group of players. I think their, their best scorer even leaves, and they immediately become undefeated. And it's like, how fucking shitty was this previous coach? It's really strange. There's just a lot... There's a lot there that's mm -hmm. very odd, but I did think, like, I was like, wow, he had a weirdly easy time getting these kids in shape, and then I remembered that we were only, like, a half hour into the movie, and the movie's about something completely different. Right. Yeah. And then I was like, wait, are we still in the first act? And I continued- We're still in the preamble. <laughs> I continued to be in the, wait, are we still in the first act uh, phase of my questions for, uh, like, another hour? Nothing mm -hmm. happens in this movie. Nothing Which happens. is wild because, like, they do manage to fill the screen time with stuff to yeah. watch. Mm -hmm. 
but nothing happens. Absolutely nothing. There's just, there's no narrative tension, there's no, there's definitely no suspense, there's definitely no, like, ambiguity about where there's it's going. There's no internal change. All of the change that happens for the characters that do change, which Carter is not one of them, uh, is external. It's all about them beginning to behave, and none of it, there's no implication even that they truly changed as people more than that they learned how to behave. Yeah, and I think the really strange thing about Ken Carter as a protagonist is just, not just the lack of change, but it's not clear what his motivation is. It's not clear who he is. Um, he explicitly says that, like, it's a bad decision for him to take this job because it pays very little and has a huge time commitment. And then, like, his girlfriend's like, you're gonna take it, aren't you? And he's like, I am. Guess that's me. And there's never an explanation of, like, who he is that makes that the case. <laughs> no, and there is like a sort of, you know, that this trite speech at the end about how rewarding he's found the experience, which is like all well and good, but we don't see that happening as it's happening really. Yeah. Um, and I do think that- They do make much of the fact that he got $1,500. Yeah, I, I just- Which is kind of ridiculous, he should have gotten more. No, he definitely should have, but it's, it's a really, it's just a strange, series of choices in terms mm -hmm. of pacing and in terms of plotting um yeah. and the movie the movie's just not interested in him being a character who has to reckon with anything internally it, yeah. it's it's a it's a movie where he comes in and says i'm right mm -hmm. and the movie then you know goes out of its way to illustrate times when that could not have been true and then immediately shoot them down as no actually yep he's right yep he never even changes his mind on anything. No, not a single thing. Like, he does not change his mind on even one thing. Um, and even when he learns new information, which happens pretty frequently in the movie. Like, at one point, for instance, the principal's like, you don't know about how resources are allocated to schools, do you? And he's like, no, I don't know that. And she teaches him. And he's like, wow, I didn't know any of that, and I'm really glad I learned it. But it doesn't change any of his actual opinions or beliefs. Yeah, he then is like, so how are we going to do this? Like, right, exactly. You know, he's like, wow, that really changed my perspective. But my perspective is that we should do the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah, which, like, on some level, I, I gotta respect, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's just funny because he does continually learn things and none of them change his mind. The one time I think that he actually shows a little bit of shame is when he asks the kids, like, what does your dad do? Is that the life you want? And Channing's like, my dad's in prison. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I'm actually sorry that I brought that up. Which is kind of funny because when I, when he said that, I sort of thought he was getting at, are your dad's in prison? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do have questions about like what was he expecting right because like he seems very convinced all of their dads sh are or lives. should be in prison <laughs> right he's like you definitely don't want to be like your dads but i'm sorry i brought up that yours is in prison very weird very weird very weird dynamic all around um, and also like the fact that he's like the one thing you don't want to do is keep living in richmond also i will live in richmond forever richmond for life <laughs> it's weird. Before we move on, um, I do want to talk briefly about music in the film. Oh, yes. And the fact that this is an MTV film. An MTV film. What was your impression of the use of music in the film and, like, how that drove, for lack of a better way to put it, the, like, the impetus for the film from MTV Films perspective, but right. also what the film decided to do mm -hmm. outside of that core Coach right. Carter narrative right. to fill in things like that Ashanti storyline and, right. and, you know, try to flesh out yeah. to varying degrees of success, 
the world of these high schoolers. I mean, one thing is, it's, it's a very odd marriage because I feel like probably there is no MTV exec who could have a 10-minute conversation about music with Ken Carter without them, like, going to each other's throats. I strongly agree, and I, I think, you know, the big thing that stood out to me with the movie is that there are a lot of moments that sort of showcase popular music from 2005 or, mm-hmm. you know, the preceding years, and make a big deal out of it and obviously with Ashanti in the movie there's an inherent mm-hmm. uh you know music and dance have to play a role in the movie to at least a small extent mm-hmm. um there is a scene where she has like this weird battle dance off with this other girl who's trying to like grind on her boyfriend and it, yeah. it's and set to the clean version of get low yes which i cannot believe but to me what really stood out was the juxtaposition of these very MTV in 2005 uh, with Mm -hmm. all of the identity crisis that that entails um, moment with this bizarrely conventional to the point of like almost parody Mm -hmm. score. Yes. The like soaring, Mm -hmm. you know, instrumental music whenever you're supposed to have a feeling Mm -hmm. was so funny to me. Yeah. I really did just think the score was like jarringly mm-hmm. cliche right, and yeah, yeah. also just intrusive. Yeah. Um, but it was mm-hmm. also just, it, it was standard movie score. Right. Like, it's almost like you could Google you could, stock it's music. It's off the rack. Yeah. Um, I just found it strange. Not, yeah. um, not even totally just real. negative, just strange. That's totally real. But I do feel like there's a certain extent to which music is used. And I think we can, you know, talk a little bit about the fact that. MTV doesn't exclusively play hip-hop, or even primarily play hip-hop, but, uh, or didn't, I should say. Um, although in 2005, there was a lot of it. There was a lot of it, but the, the film uses hip-hop as sort of a proxy for showing anything about these kids' culture, I want to say. Like, not, not culture in the sense of, you know, broader culture, but just in the sense of what these kids are actually doing with their time when they're not on the basketball court. Mm Mm-hmm. And like it's, sort it's of, shorthand. It's shorthand, and, and like the problem is like that's never tied into like the fact that like Coach Carter wants them to live differently because the music has to always be presented as a positive because this is an MTV film. Yeah, um, and it's also like the music. Also, the music rules. Like the it's music good. is good. It's I very mean, good. <laughs> I wish that it wasn't the clean version of Get Low. Right, but like but that like, aside, like I've listened to the soundtrack to this movie. Yeah, I mean like it's fun music, it's good music. and it also it it did like throw me back to like. I know. 2005. I truly felt like I was at a summer camp dance. <laughs> yeah, like, and, like, the the nostalgia of that is hard to separate from, like, whether I actually like the music. Right. Um, it's not music that I typically would listen to, but, like, I, you know. I but was it's a, definitely music that I I was like, a white kid listening to musical theater in 2005. It was definitely <laughs> music that I had some fun middle school dance experiences, too, is yeah, what I will say. Like, <laughs> despite... Uh, despite my relative lack of even exposure to mm-hmm. most of this music at the time, there's yeah. nostalgia there for me that I, I feel very fondly towards the soundtrack Definitely. to this. Definitely. Um, and I did find the, not just with the score, but even the visuals, like stylistically, there were things that felt very outdated even in comparison to mm-hmm. that, and also yeah. just cliche and weird uh, and awkward. Yeah. Like, like the... Mm-hmm. The weird slow motion shots that occasionally pepper the movie. Especially in basketball. Yeah, and not for any real reason, because they're not especially narratively important moments. They just, I guess someone thought they looked cool. Yes. Um, And it feels like there are a lot of choices like that. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think the music 
to some extent is one of them, but to another extent, like, I do actually think that the MTV involvement was one of the most positive things. Was one of the most positive things because it meant that at least when they were shoehorning popular music into the movie, they chose the right things. It does, and it actually does inject the sense of joy and exuberance that these kids' lives are missing. Yeah, and that certainly Ken Carter has no interest in having that be a part of their lives in any way. Ken Carter does not think that basketball is fun. Yeah, the the (laughs) prominence of the soundtrack just was really striking to me, and especially knowing that it was an MTV film, um, Mm -hmm. because it just doesn't feel like a movie that has room for that kind of fun and joy of like you know kids dancing and listening to fun music living their lives living their (laughs) lives and the moments we got that there is life to those scenes that is lacking elsewhere in the movie and i there's a sense that there is actually fun out there for these kids and not just a choice between death or work yeah and i think like a strange thing that that brings to the movie is this sort of ability to look from the outside at what Ken Carter is doing and be like, why is he quite this hung up on his specific idea of what these kids' lives are like? Because, like, he he also, he could ask them, ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He asks Channing Tatum one time, like, about his dad, and he gets the answer that he's in prison, then he never talks to Channing Tatum again. (laughs) He really doesn't, actually. He's like, whoops, not going there. Yeah, it's, which is also kind of wild. I have what might be a stupid question. Sure. How did they lose? How did they lose? They didn't score as many points as the other team. I know, but weren't they undefeated for most of the movie? Yeah, although a lot of their games are very close. Including the game they lose. Okay. And it's also like they go up against like super basketball man. Right, yeah. I mean, the end of the movie was the first time where I was like, oh, I'm lost because it's a sports now. I mean, and, and like, so I will say like, Possible, probably my favorite sports movie uh, is The Bad News Bears, uh, the original, obviously. Um, and that famously ends with the Bad News Bears losing their final game. Um, and so it's very much an ending that I have a lot of affection and respect for when a sports movie chooses to end with a loss. Um, and I think it's something that I would love to see encouraged more often. I don't think this movie pulls it off. No, and I also think it, even though I think it would have been weird for them to change the ending from what really happened, it feels very wrong for the script. Because the thing is that Bad News Bears is a super smart movie that's saying something really interesting about loss, and this movie is just like, eh, they're gonna lose now. So, gender in the movie. um, I want to start off with kind of a, you know, classic question for us, um, which is, who or what, it doesn't have to be a person, it can mm-hmm. be any element of mm-hmm. the movie, is doing the most in regards to gender in this movie. Yeah, so there are many potential answers mm-hmm. here. Um, and I almost went with that red thong. <laughs> it's up there. Which we will need to talk about. But I think I'm going to actually say Rob Brown, who I think is giving, as Kenyon Stone, just a really nuanced performance in regards to masculinity and impending fatherhood. Um, Much more nuanced than the film deserves. (laughs) Yeah, and I do want to say on that note that Ashanti's performance is really exceptional. Rob Brown's performance is, I think, less obvious. Mm -hmm. uh, But... And he's he's playing support to her, but yeah, he does um, it with a lot of heart. A lot of heart and a lot of subtlety that I really appreciated. But I'm thinking about the scene where the two of them babysit her niece or nephew, mm-hmm. um, and kind of 
go back and forth about how she feels that he doesn't have the experience in actually caring for a baby that he needs to have and he feels that she doesn't have the experience in like running a household that she mm-hmm. needs to have and one of the things that's kind of notable about that is you almost wonder if sort of his parents have trained him to run a household but not care for a baby and her parents have trained her to care for a baby but not run a household but for the two of them those are duties they want to share and they're Mm -hmm. kind of bringing forward this new generation i thought their relationship was really notably a partnership very for a high school couple Mm -hmm. there was a sense that they were making decisions together they were envisioning Mm -hmm. a future together where they both had you know jobs to do in terms of their relationship and their family yeah um i mean it's notable that in that conversation there's never a point where they're like well it's fine because ashanti will just take care of the baby and rob brown will just get a job there's always we both need to get jobs and we both need to know how to care for a baby yeah and it's always a you know there's this push pull of i'm not ready for this thing versus you're not ready for this thing Mm-hmm. Where they're both recognizing both of those things and for themselves and each other. Genuinely want to see each other grow for each other's sake and not just because like it would make life easier for them. Yeah, it like I just I thought it was a really loving, sweet relationship yeah. that had conflict for real reasons mm-hmm. and not just because, oh, teenagers and their drama, which is sort of the cheap way that Definitely. a similar relationship is treated in most movies. And despite the fact that this movie does kind of, in a very 2005 way, treat having a pregnancy as a teenager and as desperately immature, their actual relationship is portrayed as deeply mature. Yeah, in a way that I almost think the filmmakers didn't think of. I agree. I think that they thought that we would be judging them for being pregnant as much as they were, and mm -hmm. so it didn't matter what the rest of their personalities were. Yeah, and I, like, it it, it almost felt like an accident. And I don't think the movie intended for it to have such a nuanced view of teenage pregnancy. I don't think the movie intended to have such a nuanced view of teenage pregnancy, but I also don't think that the movie intended to have such a nuanced view of their relationship. Um, I agree. And I think that that was... Something that, you know, as you said, I think that the filmmakers thought we would bring a level of judgment to the table already that they didn't need to hammer it home, which is weird because they felt the need to hit us over the head with a sledgehammer with everything else in the movie. And again, this is part of how that almost feels like a second movie that's grafted onto this one. It does. um, And and it also, again, is important that it doesn't concern Ken Carter. Right. um, Which allows for a different... I mean, for all strategy is a second movie that was grafted onto this one that one of the screenwriters had worked on, like, had it's already had this in their pocket or something. Um, anyway, it, is that your same answer, or do you have a different answer for who's doing the most gender-wise? Uh, no, I, I agree with that, but I did want to say, like, it is mostly a product of the performances and not a product of the script that yeah. no, it I agree. reads quite as, you know, notably interesting and complicated and in a positive way. The script, I don't think, is terrible or anything in those cases. I just think that Ashanti and Rob Brown are both bringing a lot to the table there. I agree. Um, And I do think that, like, the teen pregnancy storyline is the most, certainly the most three-dimensional portrayal of a woman existing in the movie. Um, And I do also think that, like, the gender dynamics are interesting, and I think that... Mm -hmm. um, I'm really positive. They are. They are positive. I think, like, there's not a... I'm a high school athlete. I have to be this, you know, 
no, hyper-masculine guy who can't have any feelings. Like, he's he's playing with these baby shoes that yeah. she brings him and saying how cute they are. And, you know, she's like, yeah, I have good taste. Like, it's it's really cute. It's, um, they, they treat each other as equals. And then there's this scene where um, she's talking with her friends about what to name the baby. And, and she's like, oh, I think I'm going to name her Harmony. And they're like, oh, what does he think? And she's like, oh, he wants a boy. But it's like, it's fun that they've talked about it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and... I don't even know if I'd say, like, it's notable that they treat each other as equals because, like, I don't know that we even see enough of their relationship to know that. But they treat each other in a way that makes it clear they can be vulnerable with each other in a way that I think is unusual at that age and especially in fiction. And they do this incredible job of making that relationship feel lived in despite the fact that we get zero background for it other than there's a baby. Yep, (laughs) yep. Yeah, no, like, I, I really... It's a it's a remarkable subplot mostly because like it's very rare that I'm like, oh yeah, this unrelated romantic subplot in a mediocre movie is my favorite thing. Right. That's usually the opposite of what this I say. This thing that clearly should not have made it to the final film. Yeah, like, like, normally I'm like, get this gratuitous heterosexuality out of my movie. <laughs> Right. It's a little bit different in this context than it is in some things. It's the most humanizing thing in the movie, I think. It really is. About the ensemble, not just about these characters. Yeah, and it makes also the school feel lived in. Like, in the sense that because we do see these characters who aren't on the basketball team and they interact on campus, like, it almost makes me feel like there is a world of the school in the way that schools are. You know, they are these little worlds. Yeah. this movie completely fails to create that, except in these very few scenes where we kind of see Ashanti and Rob Brown hang out in the quad. Yeah, and it does make me feel like I can extrapolate from that and say, yeah, the, there are other things going on in these students' lives. And right. I, I don't think the movie necessarily needs to go much further than that in terms of creating that. But I do want to that. feel that Richmond High School is a high school and not the setting of a basketball conflict. Yeah, I mean, that like the problem is like every time that they almost get where they need to go in terms of that stuff, with just this mm-hmm. really well-rendered subplot, they take two steps back with, like, Ken Carter doing something bizarre. Yes. And then everyone else being like, we don't like this, and him being like, but I'm doing it anyway. And then they're like, fine. We must follow everything you say. It's almost like, he's just like, nobody is willing to stand up to him because he's so confident, even though they all disagree with him. Yeah, and I do want to talk about that in terms of gender. Sure, sure. Because I think that... um but- Something that I want to bring up is that um, we've talked a little bit about how his girlfriend just appears a few times in the movie, but, like, has zero personality or, like, character development. We know nothing about their relationship. They're intending to go to Mexico, Rachel. Sure. (laughs) Um, But what's strange is there's... The, I think I think it was Roger Ebert who was like, they clearly cut a scene where he doesn't go to Mexico with her so he can coach the team. Yeah, they, they... Yeah, definitely. Definitely. 100%. Yeah. But... Um, they also, there's a weird feeling that the movie doesn't know what to do with the presence of a second woman in <laughs> Coach Carter's life. Right. Who is the principal. Yeah. She's his boss. <laughs> um, and she is his boss, right? She is his employer. It's unclear if she's his boss. Yeah, like, it's unclear if she has any authority like, it's also over unclear, him. like, in, in real life, the school had an athletic director who was his boss. And okay. it's unclear if that's true in the movie. 
I also want to just quickly bring up, so first of all, unlike most of the team members, the principal's name was changed uh, for the movie. Okay. And also in real life, the principal was super supportive of him and was pretty much chill with it. I mean, in the movie, the principal is super supportive of right. him and chill with it as soon as she's gotten her objections out of the way. Sure. Like, she states her objections, which are very reasonable, such as, I don't want you assigning the teachers extra work. And I'm focusing on the students who actually have a chance of going to college. Yeah, and you don't know how resources are allocated to high schools and things like that, you know? Yeah. yeah. Really reasonable things. Yes. And then as soon as he's like... And I feel like she actually, do you want to say, is also one of those very lived-in performances where I can extrapolate kind of a history for her that she's sure. this hard-working principal. Yeah, no, she does, a really, she does a really nice job with very, um, very little. It's a testament in and of itself that, like, she holds her own in several scenes alone with Samuel L. Jackson, who, like, we haven't talked about it so much, but he really is, like, a force of nature as an actor. Like, the guy, the fact that the guy can make me interested in watching his performance in this role of all roles is just like such a testament to how gifted he is and how charismatic he is because this is a man who, like, the only personality, the only personality trait we have to yes. go off of is that he has zero personality. Right. And I, I do just want to pop in and the actor who plays the principal is named Denise Dows. I think that she she occupies this very strange role in the movie where in a movie where they didn't feel weirdly beholden to Ken Carter having this girlfriend who is never an actual factor in mm -hmm. anything that happens in the movie like they obviously would have made her a love interest right because they don't know what else to do with her and so mm -hmm. it feels like every scene between them they're like they're flailing around trying to find a way to write conflict that's not sexual tension <laughs> and yeah. what they resort to is having her almost start a conflict with him and then backing away because she's like I can't be your love interest therefore we can't have a real conversation right. about anything substantial yeah, it's and weird. I think this, this movie also has a lot of disdain for the profession of school administration it does which I can see where they're coming from but and it's I not also, as if that's an unusual take no but but it's also in it this feels a little yucky, given that school administration is represented as a woman and, you know, and coaching is represented as a man. And also that school administration is represented by this principal who is clearly committed to doing right by her students yeah. and is making points about what's in their best interest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's arguing with those points and he has some valid points. Sure. Like when he said when she says, you know, for some of these kids, high school basketball is going to be, you know, the the high point of their lives, basically, and he says that that's it the shouldn't problem. be. Yeah. That's the problem. I absolutely agree, I agree with, with him. him. I just think his strategy for dealing with that is bizarre. It's very weird. Um and I I'm not saying she has a better alternative, just that we right. don't actually know. Something that's important to point out, I think, as well, is that the principal is a woman. The school board, as portrayed in the movie, is women. There's there's one man on it, but it's led by a woman. She's does he even vote on screen? He does vote, and he's re referred to as the parent representative on the board. All but, I think, two of the parents we ever see in the movie and yes. the vast majority of the lines of dialogue given to the parents is moms. Yep. Particularly two of them. Particularly two of them. Octavia Spencer is one of them, yeah. obviously. Um, Although I would know it, but the teachers are pretty largely male. Yes. Which and is, I think, another thing that we can talk about a little bit. We but. can, but I 
the teachers are never actually involved in criticizing Coach Carter. Yeah, the teachers are largely chess pieces for Coach Carter and the principal. Exactly. Um, I just wanted to point out that with the exception of a couple of men in the community who physically attack Coach Carter over his decision to bench the team, everyone who criticizes his decision to shut down the gym and the basketball team's practices mm-hmm. and everything is a woman. And, and I do think there, there is a certain extent to which I think that the, again, white screenwriters who include verbatim statistics about the school-to-prison pipeline, I think read the statistics about the negative outcomes for adult men in this community and decided that it would be unrealistic for there to be any adult men in the community because there really aren't any. Yeah, and I I mean, I don't want to read too much into how they interpreted that whole issue, but I found it really strange that every time someone has what to me sounded like a reasonable criticism of Mm -hmm. Ken Carter's strategies or his ideas or even just his attitude. It's a woman who then has to kind of make nice with him and apologize to him or at least be proven wrong. Or at least admit, like, I still disagree with you, but of course you are a genius and God. (laughs) And also, and of course this is your decision ultimately right. and you're the authority here. Like it was just really striking to me, especially considering that his son is on the team. Like right. clearly there are fathers it's also like v- involved and there are yeah. men there are male teachers, as you said, and whatever the the people speaking in opposition to what he's doing who have any personal investment, yeah. either professionally or familially, mm-hmm. are women. And yeah. I I just found it very obvious and very, like, it made me even more confused about not knowing where his girlfriend Meanwhile, landed on all of this. Like, we don't know anything about It's also super unclear that. if the girlfriend even is the son's mom. Very unclear. Like, at one point, he does refer to the son as the girlfriend's second favorite guy or something like that. Right. But that could be a stepson, you know what I mean? Like, there's yeah. no... I-, I thought he said wife a couple times in the film, but he did say girlfriend. He does right. say girlfriend, and, and I don't think they're ever in a scene together. The two of them. Yeah. It's strange. It's very weird. But, like, I, I also do want to say, like, speaking of women and their opinions on him, it's unclear that Ashanti knows he exists. Oh, she definitely doesn't know he exists, <laughs> and thank God for that. I mean, sure, but, like, and, and, like, again, I talked about this a little bit earlier, but the people I continually thought of throughout this movie are the girls' basketball team. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, like, how they're reacting to this. And I actually, when I was looking at the real incident, did find a quote from a member of the girls' basketball team who had a 3.7 and was in favor of the lockout because she thought it wasn't fair that the boys weren't held at the same standard that the girls were, which is an interesting perspective to put in here. Um, Note that in the real world, he did not literally padlock the gym and the girls were allowed to practice, which is not necessarily the case here. It's unclear that the school has a a girls' basketball team in the movie. Yeah. Um, It's unclear where they practice or when they practice. It's unclear if they're successful. And you'd think... And something that I would have kind of liked to see is like a man on the street montage of how other members of the school community thought of this. Yeah. And at no point do we hear like a perspective either from the girls basketball team being like, why does anyone care? We have a game this weekend. Or being like, yes, this is great. I have a 3.7 or anything like that. Yeah. You know, and and I think we can then segue into the fact that this movie has, what this movie's idea of women teaching someone to play basketball is. Yeah, elaborate on that. So there's an early scene in the movie when 
he's finally like, okay, we're going to play some basketball. You've run enough suicides. This will prove to be untrue. He will make them run many more suicides. And he starts his big speech where he's going to actually teach them basketball by saying everything I know about basketball I learned from women. And there's kind of a nervous giggle. And I was like, okay, yeah, he's throwing them off by saying that. And now he's going to like maybe make them play against the girls team because the girls team is good or something like that. Or at least like talk about, and he says, yeah, I have this sister. I'm like, oh, his sister is like a WNBA player or something like that. And he's going to throw them off their game. Spoilers. It's not that. <laughs> it's not that. So then, but the actual way that his sister is relevant is that she's really annoying. So when they need to guard on court, they need to act like his annoying sister. Then he later has an anecdote about a different sister. Well, first he has an anecdote of an ex who is really evil. So when they need to like do a like kind of dirty move on court, he's going to call out his ex's name. And like all of their plays are named after women's annoying behaviors. It's, yeah. And that's when we get like one of the kids saying, how many sisters does he have? Because right. it, it really does seem like he has an infinite number of sisters. He does. And like, but the funny thing is that like, so the way that women are relevant the way that women can teach a man to play basketball is not because many women are good at basketball. It's because women are annoying as fuck, and sometimes as a basketball player, you have to act annoying. To be fair, like, he's probably not wrong, but, like... It's a weird thing It's to do. really weird. It's the weirdest thing. And, and to be clear, I mean, I don't, I mean, he's not wrong in the sense that, like, I think that women are annoying and men are also annoying. Everyone's annoying. But, like, the, the craziest thing about all this is that the annoying women method of basketball coaching like I said, overnight turns a loser team into an undefeated team. Like the big secret that gets the boys good at basketball as opposed to like good at school is not the academic contracts, it's annoying women. <laughs> like, yeah, it's anecdotes about annoying women. Like this is the secret to basketball, is to hate women. <laughs> like that's like, literally how the film presents it, which is just fascinating. Yeah. It is, and like I don't even have much more to say other than it's fascinating. It's super fascinating, and Lisa Leslie attended the premiere of this movie, mm -hmm. and I really wonder how she felt about that scene. And I, if I were her, I would have walked out. That's valid. Like, if I were Lisa Leslie and I was invited to a basketball movie premiere, and they were like, women taught me everything about basketball by being annoying, I would have left. Like, I just would have been like, I'm Lisa fucking Leslie, guys. So, the women athletes that are in this movie are cheerleaders. Yes. And I think many, that we should many talk about the cheerleaders and also, by extension, about women's bodies in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. And I will note, talking about cheerleaders in the abstract does not have to segue to talking about sexualized women's bodies, but in this movie, it sure does. Yeah, I don't think it always does, but I do think that in movies, it's generally the case. Well, especially because none of the cheerleaders are characters. Like, it's not even like Ashanti's a cheerleader, which no. they really easily could have done because it's not like Ashanti can't dance. Or they could have at least made, like, Adrienne Adrian Bailon, who's a great dancer. <laughs> like, she could have been a cheerleader. No, the cheerleaders are completely unnamed characters. Yeah. There are three teams worth of cheerleaders in this movie, and none of them have names or any lines, and their midriffs get zoomed in on a lot. <laughs> a lot. A lot. A lot. There's also, like, I was very uncomfortable with the one scene where they're, like, playing the white school, and the black cheerleaders are wearing these, like, shorts and mini tops and the white cheerleaders are wearing like traditional cheerleader dresses. Yeah, I it's noticed weird. that too. It was very weird. Genuinely, this movie loves a cheerleader midriff. It does. Yeah. And I you know, to be fair, most movies and pop culture in general in 2005 loved a midriff. <laughs> sure. But it's like very different from the way that anyone else in this movie is filmed. Absolutely. There, and, and there are choices, you know? Like, mm -hmm. 
Samuel L. Jackson could have been the, the sexual icon in this movie. I mean, could he? Well, he he's not unattractive, is what I'm saying. But also, like, the boys aren't eye candy at all. And it's interesting because, mm. well, deliberately. I would argue that with Channing, it's deliberate. We'll, we'll get into we'll that. We'll get into that. So the, the boys are mostly not eye candy. But there are a couple of locker room scenes yeah. that I do think slightly lean towards, sure. like, someone on set was definitely like, let's throw a bone to the girls watching the movie kind right. of thing. But, like, none... In a weird way. In a weird but. way. <laughs> but, like, none of the adult women in the movie are sexualized either. No. But all the teen girls are sexy times. It's... And and I say quote-unquote yeah. teens because they are adults. Not as old as the boys playing the basketball team, mm-hmm. certainly, but still, like... It was, you know, but it's still glee cast age. Right. But as, as we kind of discussed that it's unclear if this is a movie for adults or children, to the extent that this is a movie for adults, it's very weird how interested it is in the bodies of teenage girls. I mean, is it well, that? Okay, weird is, is a polite way of putting it. Let me put it that way. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to disagree that it's, like, distasteful, mm-hmm. but it's not at all out of the ordinary for... Sure the, you know, time and type of movie that it was. Um, Again, like, it's a few years after American Beauty. Like, it's definitely in the tail end of a stretch of Mm -hmm. movie years where it was basically considered fine to photograph teenage girls like that. Underage women are objectively what you're here to see. (laughs) I mean, granted, people still act like that about movies, but, like, at least they've gotten a little bit subtler. Yeah. Well, not always, but, like, a lot of the time. Usually, at least, there's a cursory effort to, like, contextualize it. Right. (laughs) And I think, like, here it's straight up, because these cheerleaders have no role in the story whatsoever, like, not even in the basketball scenes, there's no, like, the cheerleading the cheerleading moments, cheerleading shots don't really correspond... Maybe you didn't notice this. They don't really correspond to the arcs of the games at all. I did actually notice that. Yeah. That's arguably the role of cheerleaders in actual sports games is to kind of make the game narrative clear to the audience. And they're not used for that purpose here at all. We only see them like in halftime or before games. They're solely used to put something pretty on the screen. I would agree with that. Like it's like a Laura Mulvey Field Day not to like be a pretentious bitch. Laura Mulvey Field Day is my new band name. That's a great band name. Right? Yeah. Like, (laughs) we should start that band. I'm very in. And then, of course, later on, we get the most egregious example of this at the hot teen party where two girls strip off to get in the pool and the camera fully zooms right in on their crotches. Yeah. Like, I genuinely exclaimed. (laughs) I was just like, oh, we really have to do this right now? Mm -hmm. Like, this is not relevant to anything. Not that most of the movie was relevant to, you know, the plot of the movie, because there barely is one. So, there aren't comparable scenes of men, because I think going off the Laura Mulvey Field Day thread, I I don't think it would necessarily be possible for there to be comparable scenes of men. No. But there aren't eye candy scenes of men in general, and the one man in the film, pretty interestingly, because he's not famous at the time for this, who does have a kind of eye candy role is Channing. Yeah. So we can bring it back to Channing. I do, before we move on totally to the Channing of it all, sure. um, kind of want to talk uh, just in terms of gender a little bit more about the father-son relationship sure. with yeah, yeah, yeah. Ken Carter and Damien? Is that his Damien name? Damien Carter, Damien. yeah. 
played by um, Robert Richard, who gives a very odd performance, but when I found very. it very strangely compelling, like, I, I always wanted to see what he was doing in, like, the group shots, like, what was up with him, because, like, yeah. I could not figure out his It's deal. also, like, super unclear if he gets along with the other players or not. <laughs> it's very unclear. It, nothing about him is clear. Yeah. Um, but I just think that there's something very odd to me just when thinking about masculinity in the mm-hmm. film, um, which, like, it's a sports movie, so that's a big thing. In a genre that has so much tied up in masculinity and in father-figure relationships, whether the, or not they're literal father-son relationships. And just in general in the movement from boy to man. Yes. Which um, is name-dropped explicitly in the movie. I think... There's something very odd about this strange spin on the, like, Mm -hmm. that's not my dream, dad, it's yours trope, which in this movie takes the form of, like, probably ten minutes into the movie, the kid drops out of the Catholic school... Without telling his dad. Without telling his dad, and signs his dad's contract to play at Richmond. With, like, extra shit in. With, like, extra strict requirements for himself. I also want to know, again, like, it's so weird that we don't know whether Ken Carter is a single father. Yeah. Like, especially because, like, him being a single father would be a really interesting dimension to the character, and they're just so allergic to giving the character any interesting dimensions. Yeah. It's strange that once that happens, there's very little interaction directly between Ken Carter and Damien, And it's most notable because he does start to form these, you know, stern father figure Mm -hmm. mentor relationships with some of the other boys. And it's especially obvious when, you know, he does have this scene where he opens the door late at night to one of them crying on his doorstep, begging him to put him back on the team. And And Damien is watching this happen and doesn't say anything. And it's never commented on again. It sort of feels like they're roommates. (laughs) Yeah. And it also, it's very strange to me that there's never, I almost wonder if there was a cut subplot where Damien was like, you treat these kids like they're your kids and not me. But it doesn't even feel like that. It feels like he simultaneously resents his dad for making choices for him, like putting him at the Catholic school in the first place, Mm -hmm. while also doing absolutely everything in his power to impress his dad and live by his rules and emulate him very literally right you know become following in his footsteps to become this mm-hmm. like record-breaking player mm-hmm. at the same high school where ken yep. carter once played right it's then, so strange i could not tell i could not tell where they landed but on then that. also speaking of like what's missing with him like so you know, one of the bigger scenes of Damien is he shows up to school in a suit on his first day mm-hmm. for unclear reasons. Because not even the first day of school, so it's like, it's not even like, oh, I believe in being formal for important days. Like, he just is wearing a suit, and the rest of the team spots him and, like, razzes him about it. And it kind of seems like his through line is going to be, oh, I'm, like, kind of the nerdy almost effeminate guy and the rest of the team is making fun of me for that and I have to they have to learn to accept me but I have to learn to be more like them but none of that ever happens nope and it's never really revisited at all yeah like the only thing that the only time that it is revisited is that it's mentioned that he does have the grades to stay on the team and he's one of the 
the handful of students who are being collectively punished, even though they do go to class, and he helps the other students learn. But he's only one of a group of those kids. It's not even like he's the one weird kid who goes to class. It's just a really strange thing, and I don't, I don't think we're gonna reach any like, you know, conclusions no. beyond just observing the strangeness of it. But yeah. when you compare it even to something as silly as like the arc in High School Musical, where right. his dad is the basketball coach, right? And there's even, there's no resentment of the fact that he's a freshman who gets a ton of playing time and his dad is the coach. There's, yeah, there's like, barely even acknowledgement of it. Um, but let's talk about Channing. In terms of Coach Carter, what do we think is going on with Channing, um, specifically in terms of gender and genre, right. but also just in well, his performance? So generally the question, what's Channing doing, is not the kind of question that has a one-sentence answer. It's the kind of question that we then, that launches a discussion, but in this instance i do think there's a very quick answer what's channing doing he's having a fuck ton of fun he is <laughs> he's having much fun and and more fun than arguably anyone else yeah he seems to really enjoy himself in this he's having the time of his life yeah like he's having a good time with his co-stars and he's having a good time it's, i think uh -huh. playing a character who it doesn't require much from him but the moments yep. he gets to do something fun emotionally. It's definitely he does possible something. that he thought this was his one and only chance to be in a movie. We don't know. Um, you know, I haven't seen anything about that. And he seems to be making the most of it. He really, he does just seem to be having a good time. And he seems to really get along with his co-stars, which may be fake because absolutely. he is a very good actor. Yeah. But, but he absolutely does seem to be playing this role of like the heart and soul of the guys. Yeah. He's playing this role as like just this dude who has a bunch of friends he likes playing basketball with, and I find it really charming. Yeah, a guy who's always up to hang out with his basketball buddies. Yeah, and where there's... Sometimes wearing an enormous coat. Yeah, let's talk about the coat. Let's talk about the coat, because I've been waiting for hours to talk about the coat. Yeah, I mean, look... So, Channing basically has three costumes in this movie. One of them is his basketball uniform. One of them is a towel, <laughs> which Correct. we will also be talking about. And one of them is, like this enormous wool coat with a huge collar that swallows him up and clearly looks like it should be worn in like 1990s Boston, not 2000s Richmond, California. <laughs> I believe earlier I referred to it as something you'd put on Javert in a community theater production of Les Mis. Right. And, and I think I referred like, to it's it. Not a, it's not a good costume for that, but it's what you would use. Right. Because I, it's there. Right. Like you got it at Goodwill, but it'll pass. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think I referred to it as just like, he's clearly, there, there's no, there's maybe two days a year in Richmond that you could wear that coat, but he's wearing it in every scene. And it's fa it's fascinating to me. I love that coat, and I love that in a movie with a known coat-wearing guy, right. which is how I would describe Samuel L. Jackson's I would career. All, I would agree. Like, look, I also do think that while we're talking about Channing in sort of this section of the podcast, mm -hmm. We should also talk about, like, the biggest star in this movie. Absolutely. Who is Samuel L. Jackson, who later works with him two more times. Um, yep. Hopefully more than that, honestly. I would love to say, I mean, they didn't really work together in Kingsman. They're in, in, no. Samuel L. Jackson is in one scene of Golden Circle. And he it's should be in mm -hmm. other movies with him. I would agree with that. But ones that are not directed by Quentin Tarantino, preferably. But, uh, yeah, I think we should talk a little bit about... Samuel Jackson just as it comes up, and I think one of the things is like that man wears the hell out of a costume. And Channing right. Tatum is also someone who I think, in some ways, has made a name for himself 
of like being able to just like wear the hell out of clothes or non-clothes. That's what I was gonna say is that Channing is one of the better nude actors of our <laughs> of our time. <laughs> he is. Or it, not even nude. He's one of the better partially nude actors he of our time. He really is. Like he's really good at it and in a way that is very much a skill. Channing is really, really good at Dishabille. <laughs> yeah. And at knowing how to do that. And in a way that I think some of the great costume wearers like Samuel L. Jackson couldn't handle. Yeah. And I think Channing, while he does have some great fully clothed moments, like this coat, like uh, his sailor suit in Hail Caesar. Like his hat in Kingsman. Absolutely. He's not, I think, one of the great costume wearers. That's true. He's good, but he's not one of the great costume wearers, but he's one of the absolutely great partially dressed actors. He's so good at it. He's a trained stripper. (laughs) Oh yeah, for sure. And that's a relevant factor. But like, I do think it's notable that he can put on costumes that seem insane sure. and make it work. Like, he will be able to wear Gambit's little headband <laughs> and make it look normal. Absolutely. Like, I'm sorry, if you can if you can dress like Kane Wise, you can wear anything in a right. movie and I'm not gonna, like, be like, what are you doing? Well, sure. I want to get back to the coat a little bit. Sure, sure, Because sure, we sure, didn't sure. really talk about it. Sure, sure, sure. Go yeah. ahead. So, like, he's wearing this enormous coat in, like, almost every scene where he's not in his basketball uniform. Right. And it's this bizarre choice, but it... Where did they find that thing these days? I don't. I don't know. Um, I'm going to look up who the costume designer was. But there's this sense that he almost is supposed to have an arc that they just forgot to put in the movie. It does feel a bit like that. They have a couple of moments where he almost has a personality. Like Mm -hmm. I said, like there's that moment where he flirts with that girl and he like forgets her name and it's supposed to be, you know, funny. Mm -hmm. But even then, it's like... Because Channing Tatum is just there having a good time, it's, like, charming instead of gross, Mm -hmm. because he's just being silly. Like, he's just, like... he's having a good time. Yeah, well, and it's, like, it's fully at his expense, Mm -hmm. and he plays right into that in a way that's, like... He's very game for, like, not being taken very seriously Mm -hmm. in these early roles, I think. Um, And... I love that about him. I love that he just, like, he's fun to watch because he's having fun and he does not seem to be taking himself that mm-hmm. seriously. And, I don't know, did you have anything else to say about the coat besides, like, it's enormous? It's enormous, it's black wool, it doesn't fit the genre at all. No. <laughs> I'm looking at the costume designer now, her name is Debray Little, and she seems to now be an interior designer. I, I think this is the same woman. Oh, she does Game, Game of Thrones-inspired residential design. <laughs> I love her. Um, she designed the costumes for Smart House. I don't know where she got that coat. I don't know why she put it on Channing, but it truly was inspired. Yeah, like, there's just these little touches that... There's almost characters. Yes. <laughs> you know? And Channing's performance is, I think, just a series of moments of, like, almost a character. Right. Um, and, I, like, I do think that some of the other guys on the team get to be characters a little yes, bit more. Yes, definitely. Channing is basically, like, a coat and a torso. Yeah. But he smiles. And he's real cute. Oh, yeah. You can see why this wasn't his only chance to be in a movie. You can see how this, like, I don't think that I would call it a big break. 
Except in the sense that it was his first role. Sure. Which, like, is always kind of a big break. But, yeah. Also, but, can we briefly talk about the fact that this movie was cast by Sarah Halley Finn? <laughs> yeah, elaborate on that. Like, give some context for people so, who don't know. Right. So, Sarah Halley Finn is uh, a casting director who went on to do a lot of the casting for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, she cast The Mandalorian. She does a lot of big projects like that that are kind of famous for their fun casting. And so it was really fun for me to see that she was, this is, she was the co-casting director on this one, um, and it was earlier in her career, so it doesn't surprise me, but it was really fun for me to see that she was somehow involved in Channing getting his first movie role. Yeah, and it really makes sense. It makes a lot of sense if you look at the actors who she's kind of championed. If you look at the actors that she kind of has taken a chance on when maybe another casting director wouldn't have, uh, it's not surprising to me that Channing Tatum would be among that group. So we've touched on it, but where does this fit into Channing's career and his off-screen image? We've touched on kind of the idea that Channing Tatum has a lot of contradictions within Mm -hmm. his off-screen image and even within his career and his choices of films. And we can talk about the idea of typecasting in a little bit and the archetypes that he Mm -hmm. was playing early on. Um, But I do think that there's something interesting about the fact that he started off in this film where he's basically a Mm non-entity. And a couple films later almost immediately becomes like a lead almost to the point where by the time he gets to stop being a lead in everything, Uh it's surprising. Yeah. Like, by the time that he's in Lego Batman, you're like, that's Channing Tatum? He did such a small role? Oh my goodness! Yeah! Which is also, like, we can talk at some point about, like, Channing Tatum as Superman, but only in the Legoverse. (laughs) It's just inspired on so many levels. And we will get to that, and I do think that we'll get to it before we watch the Lego movie. But, like, when, you know, when we do talk about, like, you know, Gambit and things like that, it's like... Channing Tatum literally has played Superman, but he's played Lego Superman, and it's it's so specific. Yeah, it's just, it's incredible. Yeah. The thesis statement of this podcast is that we love that Channing Tatum has played Superman, but only in the Lego movies. Yes. We love that about him so much. Yes. And I think it describes everything that we want to talk about. We could leave it there, but we're not gonna. Okay. Um, But I do want to say, like, so first of all, just in a literal contemporary sense, Mm -hmm absolutely doesn't fit into a off screen image he didn't have one um, yes and like i kind of was wondering if he'd broken through at all the answer is not at all he's only even mentioned in two of the reviews i found in one of them's a photo caption wow. like he's referred to among other members of the cast as exuberant in one review from the Aww. washington post that is a good description of his performance in this movie yeah so they're listing the entire teen cap mm-hmm. quote-unquote teen cast and re- refers to them as exuberant but other than that like he's in a photo caption like this was not a performance that got him noticed at all. He did not have any celeb coverage at the time. I'm kind of relieved by that, just because, Same. like, it yeah. it didn't demand it a, attention. It and doesn't. I also think that, like, it's it's not one of the more interesting things And I will in say, I stopped my search a couple months after the movie came out in order to avoid running into his next film. Yeah. So I don't know when he started to be noticed yet. But we'll keep learning. Yeah. Um, but in terms of retrospectively, I think he, he's pretty magnetic. You can see where it is. Do you feel like Channing was typecast early in his career, either you know because of this role mm-hmm. or including this right. role? And if so, like what archetypes does he fit into? Because he, to me, 
his early career is really marked by him playing athletes and disadvantaged teens. Yeah. And I always thought of that as kind of a strange yeah. area for him to One thing be. that I want to bring up is that Channing is a Southerner. Yeah. Um, and I think that's sort of relevant in that he has kind of made a career out of playing Southerners in a way that I think is a little unusual. Yeah. Um, and where is he from again? He was born in Alabama. Um, he spent his childhood in the Mississippi Bayou. Um, and then he went to high school in Tampa. So all kind of an unusual area um, for, for an American star. And especially unusual that he then continued to play those roles and really embody the South. And, you know, I, I think looking at, like, a comparison would be Jennifer Lawrence, who started her career in a similar way and then has completely abandoned that aspect of her career. But I think what's interesting is that, and he does come from kind of, not necessarily a poor background, but... Uh, he does not come later. from, like, some kind of entertainment dynasty or, or even, like, even, a hugely privileged you know, His background. parents were a construction worker and an airline worker, mm -hmm. so that's that's kind of his background. And I think that it's possible that directors and casting directors in a world where, you know, I don't want to be like, the South is marginalized, but I do think that it's less represented sometimes in, in film. And I think that that may have been read as the, the equivalent that they were able to come up with was this sort of token white inner city kid, even though it's completely the opposite of his actual background. I yeah. think that that was kind of, I think that his background as a white Southerner was kind of translated into that. And I think then in She's the Man is his first role where he does play a Southerner, and that kind of was able to become a threat of his career moving forward. And She's the Man, again, a little bit unusual in that it is set in this very Southern world because that movie was so successful and he's so successful in it. It does make that able to become a part of his career going forward that he often plays these Southern roles. I do think it's interesting that even in She's the Man, and as his career goes on mm -hmm. after this there are threads that start here i think that he maintains he is still playing a student athlete and she's the man so i think it's interesting that he does continue to play for example athletes and he does continue to play these you know underprivileged inner city kids right. uh for a while um but that he does have this trajectory where he slowly moves kind of step by step mm -hmm. into the roles that he's most interested yeah. in. It's also interesting because he's 25 at this point. This is his first movie. He's 25 and he still has this long period of playing teenagers. Yeah. I, I do find that fascinating. There's no him. reason he should have ever played teenagers. Yeah, it's <laughs> there are plenty of people who in their mid 20s sure. get their big break playing teenagers, but it is kind of fascinating that he did it for so long. Yeah, I also think it must have been weird for him as someone who was essentially a college dropout and had been in the working world for like 7 years at that point like to go back to high school. You know, it's not as if he was a child actor who's been doing this for a decade, you know what I mean? Sure. But I do think there's actually a lot of notable examples sure. of that this thing where people in their mid to late 20s play teenagers for years at a time mm -hmm. is a really common phenomenon yeah. but it's weird every time and I yeah. don't know why we haven't like stopped doing it because every year or so someone is like what is up with these fake I mean, teens the basic reason is because it's really convenient for productions to not have to deal with having minors on set. Oh, absolutely. But the fact that there's always one person who's, who's 18 like, yeah. is weird. Yeah, it's super weird. Like, if you look at the Pretty Little Liars cast, where three of them were, like, 19 and one of them was 30, like... Yeah, and, like, <laughs> even, like, going back to, like, Buffy, where, yeah. like, you know, Sarah Michelle Gellar was, like, 
20 mm-hmm. when Buffy started, so she's, like, four years older than the character. Right. And Charisma Carpenter is, like, ten years older than the character. And meanwhile, all of the men are older mm-hmm. than that. Like, yeah, it's but I weird. always think the ones, especially, like, raven Simone on That's So Raven, or Jason Earls on Hannah Montana, especially who was, who had children of his own when he was playing Jackson. God. But, like, in particular, the ones where it's on a show for children are especially wacky for me. Yeah, and at least Channing Tatum was always pretty solidly in, you know, he was in movies that were marketed to teens, but they were definitely right. adult movies. Like, they right. weren't... They weren't the kind of movies that adults weren't seeing. Right. This wasn't this wasn't Riverdale. Yeah. Um, although I wish that Channing Tatum would go on Riverdale. Oh my god, Channing Tatum, please go on Riverdale. It's actually kind of wild that like Chad Michael Murray has had a career trajectory where he ended up like on Riverdale, on Riverdale in a sustained guest arc and Channing Tatum is doing all of what yes. Channing Tatum is doing. Because <laughs> yes. like I I think of them as very much products of the same era very of teen so. movies. Yeah, I do think we should talk about this is the time where we talk about Channing Tatum as a sex symbol and Mm -hmm. the fact that like he's probably the one man in this movie Mm -hmm. who's photographed with anything approaching the gaze that the women in the movie are. Um, There are a couple of locker room scenes where a few characters are like partially dressed or they're wearing towels or whatever. Channing is like in the center of the screen with his entire torso just and, out and there. And a good portion below the torso. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he is wearing that towel precariously it's low. It's slung. It's... <laughs> I just... slung about the hips. I, I, like, saw the first, like, shot of him and was like, Hi, Channing! <laughs> here's the Channing Tatum! <laughs> it really is, and, and it's delightful. And it's not even slightly like acknowledged textually whereas no. i think in every subsequent appearance that i've seen his like sexiness or at least his there is unbelievable physique physique are acknowledged like there, in the movie there's a moment very much like the crazy stupid love you're photoshopped moment yeah always in almost all of his films yeah and in this one it just goes unremarked upon absolutely but the camera does something it, it doesn't do what it does when, like, there's a woman in a short skirt. But no. it does something. It's it's hard to not look. Yeah, you can't avoid that it's just there. I think you and I kind of discussed whether he had perhaps been the one to make the decision <laughs> to dress himself like that. Yeah, it's... It does Because feel... it is so... Sep- and he's not the only man in the cast with a good physique. I no, mean, not at all. Even leaving Samuel L. Jackson aside, and, and I think just talking about the men who are playing teenagers, there are several of them that I think could pull off that look. Yeah, and I mean, Samuel L. Jackson is wearing so many clothes at all times in this movie, I have yeah. no idea what his physique was like at that point. No, but he was in the middle of playing Mace Windu, who also wears a lot of clothes. I think Mace probably... Windu wears more clothes than Coach Carter, <laughs> I'm just saying, he probably... Mace Windu wears more clothes than Nick Fury. Like... I'm just saying, I think he was pretty fit at the time. But what I'm saying is, like, plenty of these young men, I think probably could pull off a low-slung towel. Oh, for sure. None of these them are, are. These are cute guys. They're cute guys, and most of them have much more prominent roles than Channing, and most of them have more... Like, one of them has a sexy role where multiple girls are trying to dance up on him, and yeah. there's nothing resembling this. Yeah. And so I, I do think there is a there is a moment where I kind of wondered, did Channing just grab that towel? <laughs> I really I really did wonder, like, was Channing like, can I be one of the people who is 
partially nude in this scene. Like, or even if they were like, Channing, you'll be mid getting dressed. And Channing was like, okay, cool. Let me just tie my towel in the most erotic way I can think of. Yeah. And like, the thing is with most actors, I wouldn't think like, oh, that's, you know, that's classic Daniel Radcliffe behavior or something. And to be clear, like, we're not trying to like slut shame Channing. (laughs) Oh, of course not. (laughs) Quite the opposite. Um, but, but like, like, we are talking about this as a genuine acting choice and not some kind of, like, inherent sluttiness. <laughs> no, it's just, like, Channing is really comfortable yes. being partially clothed on screen. And I think yeah. we've touched on this, but, like... And I think views it as a form of expression in a way beyond just being sexy. <laughs> I agree, and I, I do think that, like, it's not, it's not just a question of sexiness, although I do think that, like, knowing what we know of his later career and also knowing mm-hmm. what we know of, like... He's a trained stripper. Right, and the fact that he started his performing career as a stripper. Yeah, exactly. He's really comfortable. as far as I know, he is unique among major Hollywood stars. He's really comfortable with his body and with using his body for his Mm -hmm. performance, especially when he's playing a character who is an athlete or who is in some other way really physical. I think, you know, we'll we'll see similar echoes of this with, like, Step Up, even though Mm -hmm. I don't recall him being, like, nude in Step Up. Right. Um, Although it's been a very long time since I saw it. He could very well be shirtless in it. I'd be a little surprised if he wasn't at all. But... the way that he acts with his body is really obvious even at this early point and the way that he uses his physicality to embody characters and his facial physicality as well absolutely um those eyelashes man yeah but also just that smile (laughs) oh yeah he's so there it was already there he's just darling um like that's the thing is that he has clearly grown as a performer Mm -hmm. but the elements of what would be the Channing Tatum experience are very much there and I think I think that's delightful yeah and I I do just think that like he plays an athlete in a way that he's not always playing an athlete Mm -hmm. the way he uses his body in this movie and the way that he physically interacts with other characters and, and the way he wears clothes like it's always on his mind. He is giving a performance that's pretty specific, even though there's not a whole lot for him to yeah. be doing. I would say his full body is always on his mind as a performer. Yeah. And again, I think that's that stripping background. I totally agree. I also think, like, he's just, like... I mean, it's, it's also just inherent talent, but, like... Yeah, but he's he's a dancer. Like, absolutely. Regardless of what form of dancing sure, he's sure, doing, sure, like, sure, sure. that man is a dancer. Absolutely. And it's really clear in his performance and like it's fascinating because we actually don't see him play that much basketball in this movie which you would expect to given that he is really good at that kind of movement well his background is in football not in basketball football yeah and baseball and little martial arts yeah but regardless and apparently he did have to learn basketball for this movie so but regardless like the type of movement that he tends to gravitate towards fits into basketball very well for sure. I just, I found myself really, like, watching him in the few scenes where he was, like, a notable presence and mm-hmm. seeing things that I'm like, oh, yeah, that is Channing Tatum's yeah. acting happening. Like, yes. he wasn't just there because he was pretty, yeah. and he also wasn't just there because Anything? they needed yeah. an up-and-coming you know, yeah. random white boy, he fits really well into the cast of this movie. He does, and he he, dr- he brings them together to a certain extent to where they might feel a little disjointed without him. He does create this sense of camaraderie. Absolutely. I think that's something that's true in every Channing Tatum movie. Absolutely. 
to the point where when he does a movie like, for example, Foxcatcher, mm-hmm. where his performance is really not that at all. <laughs> like, it's really, yeah. he's really playing against that and right. playing this kind of isolated right. figure with this fraught relationship with mm-hmm. any of the people he's close to. Right. It feels a little odd, and it feels... I, I don't know that it's as successful as some of his other performances, although it was mm-hmm. more critically recognized, sure. I think. But and we can talk about that when we get to that movie. Oh, and we will, <laughs> but... Um, but it, Although, of course, like that's also a very physical role. And, like, sure. In general, I do think that like he's very good at playing athletes, and he's very good at any role that is... A team effort, for mm-hmm. lack of uh, yeah. better words. Yes. He's great in an ensemble, and that comes through in And his... I think Channing, one of the reasons that he does make such interesting choices of films to the extent that we want to do a podcast about them, is that he loves movies. Like, he does. He does. He loves his job. He loves the concept. And that really shines through. Yeah. It's, it's just fun to watch yeah. him. I mean, to be clear, like, this discussion of Channing is very much a rave, and I think as we get into the more complex films... This is not just going to be a podcast where we talk about how much we love Channing. No, I think that there are also movies where I don't really like his performance. That's totally legit. And as also, there's times where we'll have more interesting things to say than whether we like it or not. But yeah. I think it's a good place to start the podcast is just reminding ourselves that we do really love him. Yeah, and that there was this spark there Absolutely. It's when clear. he was doing this bit role before anyone I do think cared about it's him. It's always hard to see these things in retrospect because you don't know how much you're just seeing what you already know. Mm-hmm. But I do think there is a sense to which it's clear why one of these cast members became a big movie star. <laughs> I mean, part of it is that he's white. I Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> apart from the fact that he's white. Yeah, I mean, like, I, several of these cast members could have been, been yeah. huge if it weren't for the fact that Hollywood was like, we'll take that one. Absolutely. But I do think, it, so let me put it this way, I think, I'm not trying to say, and why only one of them became. Of course. But I do think what you can watch this and see, oh yeah, if I'm a casting director watching this, I can see... I pick him. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, and it's like, it's it's so clear why he got more opportunities after this. Right. And, like, I do want to say, like, I think there are other people in this cast that deserve to also get those opportunities. And I, it's yeah. sad that they didn't. Like, I would love to have seen Rob Brown become a movie star after this. Where is Rob Brown? Like, what He was on Blind Spot. Okay. So he has a career. He's been in a couple shows. But I want him to have another movie. I really want him to have another I movie. I like him. So, and I had never seen him before this, at least not that I've noticed. Yeah, and not that I've noticed. And we'll see him two more times um, on the podcast. We'll see him in Stop Loss and Don John. Yeah. Um, which I think is a really interesting pair of, of returns. Yeah, but <laughs> I, I just, I really enjoyed watching him. Um, and I, I, I really want Ashanti to do more movies. Oh my god, I want Ashanti to do more movies after this. Like, yeah, like after seeing this, I'm like, who was like, no, we're not gonna give Ashanti, Ashanti tons of movies. Like, <laughs> like, yeah, like, where is that? Where is Ashanti's Hustlers? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We'll come back to a lot of these questions about Channing in future episodes, Absolutely. and I think and it'll I think be really we'll fun. reference this movie again. Yeah, so I think it'll be from. really fun to discuss some of the same things when we've gotten to some of the later movies. Yeah. So to close out this episode um, about Coach Carter, a movie that's not really a Channing Tatum movie, um, did you like the movie, Rachel? No. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I, I, that, that's, that's overly harsh, because there were moments that this movie sparked for me, but overall I would not watch it again and I would not recommend it. I agree. Um, I think that 
it was fun to watch a Samuel L. Jackson performance from this particular point in his career, kind of between franchises and kind of doing something really different than he usually is. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me of some of the things that I really enjoy about him as a performer. Yeah, I agree. And I also am really glad I saw the Ashanti performance. I yes. think that, that was really fun. And yes. Rob Brown also, like, yeah, I, I want, it. yeah, I want to see more Rob Brown performances. Yeah. Um, so I'm really excited to see him come up in more Channing Tatum movies. Yes. But I did not like the movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> just overall. That being said, it's two hours and 16 minutes. I liked about 10 of those minutes. Yeah, and I, I just. <laughs> It's saccharine at times, and it's also very didactic in a way that I don't really agree with. Yeah, it's like, it's one thing that it's preachy, and then it's another thing that I don't agree with it's preaching, and like, those are both separate problems, and they're both there. And I also think that it plagiarizing Marianne Williamson is weird. It's weird! So, uh, that's my thought on that. Yeah. So, on the other hand, I think we've already basically answered this, but do you think it's a good movie? I think largely no. Yeah. I think, in the end, it's just too broken, storytelling-wise, to be a good movie. I agree. I think that it has some good performances. It has some good performances. It has some moments of good directing, but it's really broken. So another fun question, if we were going to do a spin-off podcast about another cast member of this movie, right. who would you pick? Okay, so one of the problems is that we absolutely can't say Samuel L. Jackson because that involves watching the entire MCU. I mean, here's the thing. My answer is still going to be Samuel L. Jackson because frankly oh, that's not my answer at all but go ahead no um frankly like ashanti doesn't have enough movies no my answer is octavia spencer though yeah but as we've discussed that octavia be a lot spencer to get through. has been done wrong so many times it's true but like okay. if you had the stamina to sit through the octavia spencer filmography like it would be fascinating to discuss i mean it's not really a question of stamina i like her work even in movies i don't like yeah. most of the time but she also does, like, a lot of roles that speak for themselves. That's and true. I think that Samuel L. Jackson, because of his repeated collaborations with the same filmmakers mm -hmm. and his yeah. repeated returns to the same franchises, yeah. right. is a much more interesting figure to discuss in the context of those movies. There's still not that much for me to say on, right. like, his performances in Tarantino movies. Like, what can I say? I think he's good in them. I don't always like the movie. That's I, about it. I, I do think this is one of the harder ones to answer this question for, just because the amount of the cast that like has a significant career is smaller. Yeah. But basically, like I would watch all of Octavia Spencer's filmography back to back just like to watch her. Sure. But I don't know that I would make a podcast about her. That's because, totally like, fair. She's just good. Good. Like yeah. across the board, like no matter what she's in, she's good. She's and it's great. It's a lot more fun, frankly, to talk about actors who are who a little more inconsistent. Are a little more inconsistent or at least a little bit more able to take risks. Because I don't think that she's given or at least until recent years, mm -hmm. she wasn't given as many opportunities to take right. big risks with the movie she was picking. The thing about Samuel L. Jackson is like yeah. we've seen the Star Wars and Marvel movies that he's in, which is right. lots of them many more times than anyone should and so it wouldn't be that unusual for us to just watch them all again that is true and he's also barely in endgame which would be nice for us yeah but i'm fair. glad that we're doing a channing tatum podcast instead of that me too because it's fun yeah and it, it's a little more variety exactly i like the variety are you ready for the highlight of the podcast which is when you share 
a Channing datum. <laughs> yes, I am ready. I Which, have to a, be clear, it's a pun about fun facts about Channing Tatum. Once this podcast is over, we will have a collection of Channing data. Exactly. If you hate puns, I'm sorry. You should. You should not listen to a show called The Channing Salon. <laughs> you walked into this one. <laughs> Yeah, actually, you did bring this on yourself. I'm not apologizing. You really did. So I have a kind of two-part Channing datum um, about on the theme of names. Uh, just kind of to ease us in, first of all, I do want to know that Channing's middle name was Matthew, which is, like, such a normal name to be in the middle of Channing and Tatum. Uh, and I also want to note that when he was stripping, he went under the name Chan Crawford. Wow. Right? I mean, it works for him. It works! It's unclear where Crawford came from. It's not his mom's middle name, which uh, his mom's maiden name, which is Faust. His mom's maiden name is Faust. Yes. Holy shit. <laughs> She's a uh, K Tatum, formerly Faust. You're telling me he didn't? He like he had the chance to go by Channing Faust. He had the chance to go by Chance Faust. <laughs> Chance Faust. Wow. Chance Faust is like Channing Tatum's like wizard Sona. <laughs> Yeah, Chance Faust is like... That's like that's, a, a, a bad urban fantasy series. I was literally going to say that's the paranormal romance yeah. avatar of Channing Tatum. All right, so that's it for The Channing Salon, episode one. Next time on The Channing Salon, we're delving into 2005's Havoc. None of it really matters. We're just teenagers and we're bored. We are totally bored. Until then, you can join us on Twitter, at Channing Salon. You can join us on Instagram, at Channing Salon. And you can join us on Letterboxd, at Channing Salon. Or you can shoot us an email, channingsalon at gmail.com. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you feel like it. Yes, uh, we will be delighted and like probably cry with happiness. Thanks for listening. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Indeed. Well, we won't, because we can't see you through the mic. It's a metaphor. <laughs>